All right, friends. <laughs> Let's begin our study today by asking, what does America need most right now? Say, well, there's a lot of things that could go in that blank. I mean, today's day of division and fear. There's insecurity. There's loss. I mean, doesn't it seem like the year 2020 is the year everything went wrong? And like big things, little things. I mean, it's just like we've almost gotten used to it. Like, oh, of course, that would break. That's 2020. Right? How does the world move forward? Well, in 1945... Uh, there was a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. You may know her story, but she asked this question. Of course, the world was coming out of World War II. She lived in Holland. The level of brokenness would be difficult to imagine. She'd been in a concentration camp. She lost much of her family to the war. The world had been torn apart in her own country. It had been fractured by those in the Dutch that sympathized with the Nazis and helped them and those that resisted. You want to talk about polarization, right? You got neighbors living side by side, some that helped the Nazis, some that resisted. How do you you begin to put those two groups back together? Corey found that that started with her personal forgiveness and continued with comfort. And believe it or not, she began an organization to reach out to those that had been kind of lost in the culture, the Nazi sympathizers, and she tried to help them reintegrate into society. I love this. It's beautiful, but it's shocking. So Corey Ten Boom and a number of area churches actually rented a concentration camp in Germany to rehabilitate those that were all broken from the war. They repainted They took down all the barbed wires, and what was a culture of death became a place of life. And that existed for quite a while. One author writes about her. Her purpose was to help people find security in Jesus Christ in the insecurity of building a new existence among the war ruins. To meet these refugees was to come into contact with a bruised Germany. Some were bitter. Most were defeated and unhappy. And so Corey was exactly what a post-war world needed. She taught others to love and to forgive again. But how do you go? Seriously, how do you go from nearly dying in a concentration camp to being a caretaker for former Nazis and other broken people? Where do you get the resources? You need to be uh, careful and to care for the world after you've suffered so much? Well, that's the question we want to answer today. Now, we're in a a section of messages that deal with reaching out to our community. And I'll admit, like I, I started planning this message series about a year ago, and this is not at all where I expected to be. But after looking at who God is, our good Father, and his kindness and what he's doing for us and how he's brought us together as family and what that means for us. That really changes the way we reach out to our neighborhoods and our community. How we address their pain. Now we need to understand our calling to love and serve a very broken world. Because people need more than your theology. They need more than a simple gospel presentation, right? They need something powerful. They need nothing less than to be restored in relationship to the God of the universe 
And to get there, they're going to need to see the Father alive and active in me and in you. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This may be the most autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. We get a good sense of what's going on in Paul's world. And the theme here is perfect for what we're all facing. Paul writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we, which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we shall share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our suffering, and we also, you will also share in our comfort. So today, we want to see how God comforts us in suffering, how that suffering equips us to care for others, and how caring for others completes our joy. Let's pray, and we'll investigate this text. Father God, we've gathered as family, and all my brothers and sisters harbor hidden hurts. Not a single person in this room has not been touched the icy finger of suffering and affliction. It surrounds us, everything from disappointment to hurt relationships to broken bodies. Father, We need you to heal us. This text is a glorious truth, but the words will fall flat if your spirit doesn't teach us what they mean. We need to walk in these promises. We need to allow them to change our lives. Father, I can explain the words as you've explained them to me, but I can't change my heart. I can't change my dear family's heart. Would you meet with us in this hour? Lord, it is so critical. Not only do we need these words, but our community needs these words as well. Would you help us to embrace this truth? We ask these things in your name. Amen. So we begin with this premise that God comforts us in suffering. Now I want you to notice we began in verse 3 and look at that first word. The word is blessed. Blessing. To bless God means to value and worship him with a delight that must be expressed. Right? You're seeing something so beautiful in God, you just have to get it out. You have to share it with other people. You say, what are we, what are we worshiping God for? Well, the text says, we value God above all things and treasure Him because He is the Father of mercy and He is the God of all comfort. Would you just notice with me in these verses how many universals there are? The alls and the ennies. Consider what that's going to mean for us. Now, we've talked a lot um, about God, but this says that he is the source of all of our comfort. We have a God who gives. 
Um, Romans 8, 31 through 32 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm going to think about that. God of all comfort, the God of mercy. That means God is a good father who shows mercy to what? Our failures and loves us in our grief. The idea of mercy is that of pity. Right? And if you've ever had children or cared for children, you know this feeling. It's what you feel when they suffer. Have you been there? Grandchild learning to ride a bike, they, they spill, they skin their knee, and they start wailing. How do you feel? That strong pity that bears them up in your arms and will do anything to make that pain go away. You hurt with them. That's the idea. I think it's much harder to watch my kids suffer than for myself. I know how to comfort my heart. I know how to to work through the pain, but my children don't. The suffering is intense, and I hurt. I hurt with them. You need to think of of God as a father who is suffering with you in the middle of your pain. That is your father, who while you walk through this difficulty, the father also groans with the brokenness in his world. Now he's hopeful. He's infinite. God can groan and be hopeful and powerful all at the same time. But he does. God is the good father that grieves with us. One author explains, he calls himself the father of our Lord Jesus Christ because his consolations are born of his own suffering. Compassionate fathers are always devastated by the gut-wrenching suffering of their sons. But God doesn't just sit by in our misery, no. James says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And this text says that one of those gifts is God offering us all comfort. I want you to just ponder that. Think of the infinite resources at God's disposal and realize that this means God will comfort you in every possible way. He calms our mind and our bodies, and our emotions. He enters into our affliction and speaks words that only he can say. Why? Because he knows you all the way to the bottom. He knows the depth of your emotion. He knows the anguish of your thoughts. And he alone has the plan and the power to deliver you. So he will stabilize your heart in the short term. And in the long term, he's leading you to comprehensive deliverance. The structure of these verses, the roots of the mercy and comfort, um, point us back to Jesus. And you can understand the pity of the Father. You can also understand his uh, encouragement and comfort by watching how he cared for his son, particularly in the Gospels. Right In the Gospels, you can watch God, the Father, protecting His Son, strengthening, nourishing, and guiding Him through all manner of circumstances. If you've been rescued by Jesus, then you can expect the Father to deliver you in just the same way, in all of your affliction. So God is the source of all comfort, and He does comfort you in, notice, all of your afflictions. So whatever you're facing today, this verse is for you. 
And I love that Paul insists that God comforts us in everything, in all of those afflictions. God uh, is prepared to help you through all the suffering, all the pain, all the anguish, and it doesn't matter if what you're facing today is physical or emotional or spiritual. God knows how you walked through our door and has a plan to bring relief. Now, please don't miss the scope of this truth. Right? This is... It costs Paul something to write this. Just let your eyes drop down to verse 8. It says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. But it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You say, what on earth was Paul facing? We're not exactly sure. But whatever it was, Paul expected it to be fatal. <coughs> okay, we got pressure on our shoulders. Not everybody is staring into that kind of abyss. At least not right now. He was so taxed. He was certain that he had reached the end of his life, the end of his ministry, and he was certainly at the end of his strength. He had nothing else to give. Right? He was despondent. Now, in this book, right, regardless of what Paul had in mind when he wrote this, he's going to talk about betrayal and shipwreck and beatings and imprisonment. He's going to tell us that he has this thorn in the flesh that drives him nuts every day. And three times he's begged God to take it away because he's like, God, I, I have a tough time serving you with this. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it away, but my grace will be sufficient for you. This is the backdrop in which our passage is set. And let's not forget, by the way, in terms of emotional pain, that Paul is writing this letter to defend his apostleship. Like, we we venerate Paul. We think he's the greatest thing ever. But in his day, there were people running behind him, slandering him in the churches that he planted. Can you imagine? You pour two years of your life investing, seeing people come to know the Father, building a church, and you leave, and they write you a letter, please don't come back. We think you're wrong, and we don't like you anymore. Whoa! Did that? Ha- yeah, that absolutely happened. Although I think the way I stated it was probably a lot nicer than the way they stated it. Right? Paul, you're a terrible speaker. You're weak. There are better people. We don't need to see you anymore. And so he writes this letter partially to defend the fact that God has called him and equipped him to do his job. That's amazing. Want to talk about emotional grief? I think Paul was pretty good with the suffering in his body, but that must have just ripped his heart out. This is the backdrop. And I think, I think Paul knew suffering. And in this text, he insists that God is eager to bring comfort in the middle of your most difficult circumstance. You say, okay, that's fine. But maybe it's reasonable to ask why God allows us to suffer in the first place. Right? If we've got an all-powerful God, why on earth is life so difficult? Well, let's just consider that God never wastes your pain. Now, I want to tread very, very carefully here, because I'm going to talk to your head. 
Okay? This passage is going to give us truth, but sometimes truth stings the heart. Okay? So you're going to have to take the truth, but you're going to have to communicate it through your soul if it's going to be a balm to you. You know, the truth is God knows the plan he has for your life, and he is not reacting to your difficult circumstance. He actually led you here. That's so hard to take. Like, what you're facing today did not surprise God. He brought you here on purpose. He knows what he's going to do. He knows in the middle of this crucible how he'll protect you and ultimately how he'll deliver you. But what he asks in the meantime is your faith and your dependence on him. Nothing here is going to be wasted. And I know, I know that pain is real and that it hurts. And I know some of you have been pushed to the breaking point this year with trauma and confusion. The road is not easy. And there's like this underlying stress that just simmers in all of us. But for most of us, the problem is not the pain that you feel. Right? It's not that you woke up this morning and the joints just didn't want to cooperate. That's pain. Right? Some of you swallowed pills enabling you to be here today because without them, you might not be walking down our hallway. I get that. I live that too. All right? But it's not so much the physical pain. It's what we bring to the pain. Right? We fear things might get worse. We fear they may never get better. The fear, the anxieties, the what-ifs, the doubts, those are the things that flood our minds and make the suffering so much worse. There's an author that writes brilliantly on this, Paul David Tripp. He says, you and I never come to our suffering empty-handed. We always drag a bag full of experiences, expectations, assumptions, perspectives, desires, intentions, and decisions all into our suffering. So our lives are not shaped just by what we suffer, but also what we bring to our suffering. What you think about yourself, life, and God will profoundly affect the way you think about, interact with, and respond to the difficulty that comes your way. I read that a while ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Right? Let me illustrate the point in a simple, silly way. When most of you don't like needles, you don't like getting injected, that's probably the thing you hate most about seeing your doctor, right? Most of you, me just bringing that up, some of you are shifting in your seat. You are uncomfortable, and I can see it. You know who doesn't mind shots? Your dog. Your dog hates the vet. You drag them there. Man, they are, they are stressed out of their minds. They don't like the doctor. They don't like jumping up on that, like, stainless steel thing. They don't like being weighed. They don't like all the sense of the other dogs. You know what they don't mind? Shots. Why? Because a dog looks at a needle and doesn't make any sense to them. And they do not anticipate pain. And so that needle, which is very fine and very sharp, it goes right into their hide, and they don't think much about it. They normally don't even yip or bark. But they're thrilled to leave. Now, why is that? Well, because uh, the truth is shots don't hurt that much. It's a little prick. Not my favorite thing in the world, but they don't hurt that much. But we bring an enormous fear because the idea of taking a two-inch needle and shoving it into your body, well, that's just not pleasant. And you probably all had the phlebotomist that, you know, failed out of med school, and there they are sticking you over and over again. You're like, stop it! Enough! 
right? And you've got that experience in your mind, and the doctor says, we need blood work, and you just, like, pass out. It's like, no. (laughs) You know what makes it worse? If you don't believe the treatment you're getting from your doctor is actually helping. Right? So now we've got two things. We've got the, the fear of what could go wrong, like this might really hurt. And we're thinking, this might not even help. This might actually harm my body. Right? So we've got like layers of suffering going on here. Can't you see that? And so now when the doctor walks in, you're like, you know what? No. <laughs> like we're refusing treatment. Was it because needles hurt so bad going to the body? No. It's, we've got all kinds of emotional and physical, and we've got a, like a memory response going on. Everything that's ever gone wrong with a shot is in that moment. And so our suffering is worse. Now, you're working through all kinds of things right now, but can you see that in this situation, what causes the stress and the pain is not the sensation from the needle. It's what comes into our minds and our fear that makes visiting the doctor so unpleasant. I'll tell you, I've had to come to peace with needles. I don't like them, but I get poked quite a bit. And when you remind yourself that actually needles don't hurt too bad, and my doctors, I'm here because I trust them, it makes the whole thing so much easier. Okay, I still don't look when they jab me, but I'm pretty much at peace that they know what they're doing. I've got a great medical team. I hope you do as well, all right? But it helps. Now, you still feel pain. You still feel the prick, but... The pain, the prick is manageable. It's so quickly forgotten. You know what's not quickly forgotten? Your stress, your anxiety. If you're like all worked up all day about seeing your doctor, how long does it take for you to relax? Right, a pinprick's like, oh, are we done? Yeah, we're done, we're good. Mild discomfort versus like days of stress. That doesn't, your body keeps score, all right? So let's ask ourselves the question, what is God doing in the pain? Recognizing that if we can see pain clearly, it makes hard things much more manageable. While first he's teaching you to depend on him and trust him. He's removing the crutches you lean on so that you find strength, not in yourself, but in him. God does not intend you to limp through life leaning on foolish things. No, he intends you to be strong and fearless, and he wants you to trust his strength more than your circumstances. Secondly, God delights to show you his power, and he loves delivering you from difficulty. Do you ever marvel at the courage of folks in the Old Testament? I mean, who are these people that fought lions with their bare hands and stared down at giants? Where do you get the courage to defy a king or only bring a trumpet into a battle? Like, seriously? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good with this. How do you sleep in a boat that is sinking in a storm? Well, when you've seen God show up over and over and over again in your life, you stop worrying about the circumstances. Right? Jesus, he's sleeping in the back of the boat. He wakes up, and after calming the storm, he says, Hey, uh, where was your faith? What a question. Right? Their experience was when boats take on water, people die. Jesus' experience was when there's danger, the Father shows up. It's completely different. Amen. So he's not afraid, knowing that the Father would not allow his son to die in a boating accident. And nor would he allow his son's friends to die in that boating accident. Had they known the Father... 
The disciples would not have feared the crowds or the Pharisees or the Romans. And what's so interesting is after Jesus raises from the dead, what happens? They're not afraid anymore, right? They saw God display his power over death and over authorities. And they go out boldly. And they even die for Christ. But they are no longer afraid. You see, they started to walk through life with the God of the universe. And did they face pain and pressure? Oh, yes. But they did not fear that something was wrong, nor did they fear that God would not save them. They knew the truth. And they trusted their very lives to God to accomplish the impossible. And so God takes us through trials to diminish our dependence on weak things like ourselves and to strengthen our faith in Him Now, lastly, and this is amazing, God leads us through suffering so that we can care for other people. Look at our text again. Look at uh, verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's quite a sentence. God comforts us. Why? To care for others. This is the third reason for suffering And it gives us patience and endurance. Not only does God sustain us in trials, but he uses our suffering for this remarkable purpose of caring for other people. Suffering is the school that prepares you to love and serve others. So athletes, they go to the gym and they train. Why? Because they want their body strong. They go through pain to gain performance. A student will study to the point of exhaustion. Why? They want mastery. Let me ask you, what road are you willing to walk to serve Christ well? We are in the school of suffering so that we can reach those who are desolate. Our text says, your suffering enables you to comfort. Now, like if you're really hurting today, and some of you are, I simply want you to consider this reality. I want you to hope for a future that likely right now feels very remote. Okay? For you, I want you to feel a tremendous sense of purpose. Um, In preparing for this message, I got a lot of help from a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. You might know her story. Diving accident as a teenager left her as a quadriplegic. She's given her life to caring for hurting people. And she wrote this, when Christ enters his comfort, enters with his comfort, he turns our suffering inside out, raising sad spirits, inflating collapsed hearts, and bolstering weak wills with his presence, his perseverance, and hope. It is the nature of Christ's comfort not only to feel sympathy, but to redeem. That's written by a quadriplegic that has spent the vast majority of her adult life stuck in a wheelchair caring for very, very broken people. There's no like, hey, you'll get through this, it'll be better tomorrow. It doesn't get better for Joni Erickson Tata. It just gets harder. And yet she has seen God show up and redeem that suffering. Nothing's wasted. And what God can accomplish through your tears will last for eternity because your faith points people to comfort. Verse 4 in our text explains that God comforts us in our afflictions so we're able to comfort people who are, did you see the word? In any affliction. So every hardship you go through equips you to care for people in very diverse circumstances. Let's consider why that might be true. 
Have you ever watched kids or students go through rejection, betrayal, or loss? Right? It's like the four-year-old who has their truck and the wheels fall off. And what happens? The world ends for that four-year-old. Mm-hmm. Right? They sit down. They scream. They refuse to be consoled. It doesn't matter if you presented them with 20 other trucks. Their truck is broken. And the world will never be the same again. Now, you're looking at that and you know better. You know how to calm yourself down. That child doesn't. All that child can do is look at the broken axle and their emotions just ramp up. How on earth do you get to pick up that child, hold them and say, it's going to be okay? Because you know. You know the sun will come up tomorrow. You know the other things to love. You know the truth that that child has not yet experienced. How powerful is that child's emotion? Oh, my word. It's like a 10 on the Richter scale. I mean, their minds are blowing up. Students, when they face rejection or betrayal, it's like the world is ending. It feels that way. It does. How do you get to step in and say, you know what? I know how badly this hurts. I've walked this road. Here are my scars. But it's okay. The heart heals. And you say that with empathy because you really do understand you're crying there sitting on the bedside. But at the same time, you know we'll make it through this. Life's not over. This hurts. This stinks. I am so sorry they sinned against you. But the God of all eternity will walk with you, heal your heart, and it's not over. You still have a bright future ahead of you. There are some things we would think it's not possible to recover from, like sexual abuse or torture or the horrors of war. Those things are black and terrifying. But there are believers that have walked that road and they've seen God sustain them in the darkest moments. Now, when I wrote that sentence, I kind of drew back. There's a risk in mentioning those traumas. I've not walked that road. I've not experienced anything on that list. Okay? But I can tell you, I have suffered chronic illness for a good portion of my life. I have had cancer, and I do have a special needs daughter. And I promise you, God shows up in all of those things. And I promise you that those things are big enough to bring you to your knees. But while you're there, in the darkness, you will find hope. You will find life. And you'll even find... You'll find joy. You see, when you have no more strength, God sustains you and it banishes your fear. I know what it is to have no money. And I grieve for those of you that are looking for a job and it's become very difficult, often for no fault of your own. Right? I cry when you suffer and get sick. But I know that God will comfort your heart when my words fail. It's a kind of certainty that allows you to pray in a new way. It allows you to listen and grieve and to care for people and to offer them hope. Earlier I quoted Paul Tripp who explained, we all bring thoughts and fears into our suffering. Fear makes suffering unbearable. But faith gives boldness and strength. And the same is true when you comfort, right? You and I have to taste suffering if we're going to care well. You need to know how much it hurts if you're going to be gentle enough to the grieving or the depressed. 
You need to know the loss so that you can be patient with those that are disoriented. It's so unkind to say, hey, just get over it. it. Their world just collapsed. Step into that gloom and shed tears with them. Why? Because suffering teaches us to empathize and it gives us a vocabulary for pain. But strong faith ignites living hope and it brings light into the darkest of those circumstances because we have a king who is the judge of all the earth and we have a God who raises the dead so we are not afraid. You can't comfort well if you have not suffered. What happens if you try? Well, you'll be brash. You'll be impatient. You'll offer people cliches and platitudes instead of understanding. You might stand in solidarity. Our world loves that word. I stand in solidarity. But if I can't offer you hope, then I'm not doing much but standing around. We end up like Job's friends. And we can actually make difficult circumstances even worse. But the school of suffering expands our hearts and it tempers our faith. And in weakness, we discover strength. And in the darkness, we find hope. This text is amazing. It explains why God left you on the earth. His plan is to reconcile this entire broken world back to himself. And so he calls you to himself He gives you his spirit to start healing your heart and then sends you out to find broken people on purpose. Because now you know the truth. You know where the help lies. If you want to serve God, then there is no other path but suffering. We are following Christ who walked this road before us. Remember Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But you can only comfort people, as our text says, with the comfort you received from the Father. Giving God's comfort is not like slapping a pint of life-saving blood on the counter saying, here you go. Take this, it'll do you good. Instead, it's like hooking up your spiritual veins to a hurting one so God can infuse his comforting truth through your pain as well as through your presence. Is it possible that some of you are still at war with God because you are living a life you did not expect? Is it possible that your heart is raw this morning, but you're drawing back from God because you doubt he really cares for you? These verses insist that Jesus knows your pain firsthand through his life and also knowing you all the way down. The Father has allowed you to suffer. He has. But he has not led you here to destroy you. On the contrary, this is a moment of refinement. So run to the Father. Pour out your heart. Give Him your anger. Give Him your pain. Give Him your doubts. This is the time to hold God to His Word and say, Father, right now, I need peace and endurance and faith, and I dare to ask for joy. You're struggling with this. I'll talk to you anytime. I'd like to recommend a book. It's very helpful. Very honest. John Piper wrote a book, When I Don't Desire God. Sometimes life is upside down. Sometimes it's hard to trust. Stakes are high here. 
What God wants to do is use you to rescue with lost souls who are groping in darkness with no hope or purpose. Look at verse 6. We're told that we suffer for the comfort and the very salvation of others. That's amazing. Your faith leads to other people's salvation and deliverance. That's so surprising that that word salvation shows up in this verse. But don't miss the vital point. When do people typically lose their faith? Isn't it during times of suffering? Like, I mean, it seems so easy. Christianity seems so promising. And then you slam into a wall. Your spouse dies. And you're like, where's God? That's an honest, very real question. And what's God's plan for answering that question? Yes, he shows his grace, but he does through you who have already walked the road who grab somebody's arm and you cry with them and say, hey, let me let me hear your story and let me show you how God showed up in my life. And we'll walk this together, you and me. And we'll continue to walk with the Father and see what he does in your heart. You see, it's so critically important that God raise up a family who understands the truth and has borne the pain so that you can care for people who think they're drowning. And they are. Without you, they might not make it. Yes, I know, God will keep his own, but you are God's grace. You are his hands and feet to step in and stabilize faith that has been shattered along with somebody's very precious dreams. These are the people that you offer hope and perspective. They need someone on the other side of the betrayal, the bankruptcy, the cancer, the widowhood. They need to see God's sustaining power and goodness even in the scars of life. And they need you to show them how to endure and how to make sense of the Father. The sobering message, I hope it's hopeful. Can I ask you a pointed question? How big is God in your suffering? In your pain? Do you feel the presence of God? Do you hear his voice saying, I love you, I'm with you, and you are precious? Do you believe that this is a moment that has eternal significance? And at this moment, you stand on a stage of grace with the privilege of showing people what the Father's like. Friends, don't waste your pain. Don't live as if your father is calloused or distant or indifferent. No, run to your father, let him heal your heart, and then let your redemption show. To everybody, display your scars. Weep with those that weep. You might be the only person in the world who understands their pain, but also knows where to find hope. Let's end. This has been a little heavy. Let's end with the optimism of this text. God's not playing games with you. You've left a life of futility, and now your life lives with eternal significance. So glorify God in your suffering. Seriously, is your theology big enough to realize that God may have led you into suffering for the express purpose of teaching you how to care for someone who is unreachable any other way? Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable that God may lead you to go through some heart-wringing event to save someone else? That's calling. That's purpose. 
Can you trust God to walk through your pain so that you'll be able to offer help to someone else? Friends, some of you, say this with love, some of you have nursed your wounds for far too long. Boldly go to the Father. Tell Him your fear. Tell Him your pain and ask Him to heal you. Ask Him to use you. Because if you can't see God working through your pain, you have an unbelief problem. That's not me wagging my finger. All of us struggle with unbelief. And we look at the pain and say, how does a good God do that? Okay? God's promising. He's promising on this text. He is up to something very, very good. So ask the Lord for perspective. God, I don't understand. God, this hurts so bad. I don't know what to do. The Father has an answer. He'll give it to you. Just as Job was suffering. Now, don't please don't assume that if you go and say, God, I don't understand. I don't want an answer that God will tell you why you're suffering. Sometimes that answer never comes. But I will promise you something. A man named Job. And he suffered terribly. And he demanded to know why. What did God do? He didn't tell him why. But he gave Job such a compelling vision of his power, his control, and his beauty that Job said, you know what? I'm going to stop asking that question. It's enough to know that you walk with me. And Job was changed. And his community was changed because Job knew the truth about God. Now I want to admit, in writing this, I cried through every page of this sermon. Because I really am afraid of hurting some of you. But it's time to come out of the shadows. Our very complaints, our grumblings, our discontent, dissatisfaction are often lies about God. When you complain, you are lying about what God is doing in your life. You walk with the God of the universe. There are no wasted moments. There are no mistakes. There is no failure. People sin against you. Yes. Your body breaks down. Yes. But trust God and stand still and see his deliverance. Amen. Offer him your trust and wait patiently for him to act. Give God your belief, your unbelief rather, and cling rather to his promises. The dawn is coming. We boast in the Father. We are not afraid. We do not grieve as those that have no hope. So yes, we cry. And perhaps Christians grieve more deeply because we dare to step into society where there is evil and brokenness. We don't hide. We don't numb ourselves to the cries of people around us. No, we beg the Father to comfort us and then we share that comfort with the very broken. So we comfort people through our hope. Friends, we are the light of this community. This little tiny village is for us. We're here because of our friends and our neighbors. They're lost. They need to find a way back to hope. And they don't need your theology or preaching or your morals, at least not at first. They need the comfort of the Father. They need the forgiveness of the Son. They need the power of the Spirit. They need to find God Through you. Your life, broken but healed, 
is the mirror that reflects the perfections of God. This is good news. The world does not need you to be perfect. They need to see you as forgiven. They don't need your strength. They need to see your dependence on the Father. They don't need your rules. They need to see you delighting in God and giving your whole life to Him. This is true. Let's end with Joni again. The man of sorrows is the bread of life, torn and broken for the nourishment of hurting people. And since we are his body, he intends that we pass on his encouragement through his own brokenness. We're God's children. Lean on the Father and then seek out, actively seek the hurting and show them the comfort that the Father has given to you. Now we all need to talk to God about this text. Some of you just don't believe God can fix what's broken. You think the wounds go too deep. Some of you are mad at the road that God has placed you on. Some of you are just so tired, you just don't think you can continue. Some of you are weary at caring for a hurting person. This text is the voice of God. And now we need something more. We need to see his power. Stakes are high. If God doesn't show up, we're all lost. But he will. You pray privately, and then I'll lead us together. Father God, I would not have dared to offer these words if they were not found in your word. Lord, this promise exceeds our expectations. But Father, we need to see you show up. We are desperate. We are desperate to see your power. The pain is so deep and the brokenness is so great. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot fix our friends. And we desperately need to see you do that work. Father, I love these people. The pain in my home, the pain that they face is staggering. But you are the God of all comfort. Yes. Father, we, we dare to believe that this is true. We dare to believe that you are in control and you will use every moment for your glory, for our good. So, Father, for my friends, may we not wallow in self-pity. May we not live in defeat. May we not live with a shallow little God. May we see your glory displayed in impossible ways and then send us out to be salt and light to a community that desperately needs you. Father, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.